receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Pause just for a second. I don't know where all the places are in Lansing, um, but there are intersections that you know when you pull up to that intersection, there's going to be a guy there with a bucket, right? With a handwritten sign that says, we'll work for food. Please help me out at homeless for, um, you know, for all this time. And if you're a really compassionate person, what's your first response? It's to go into the, the thing on the seat that has the change, right? Or into your pocket and roll down the window and give them some change. If you're a compassionate person, if you're not a very compassionate person, what's your first response? Look straight ahead. Don't look at him, right? Because if I make eye contact, then I'm going to feel guilty and I feel like I've got to do something. So we, we kind of look every place else. It happened in Honduras. I'm riding in a vehicle in Honduras with a Honduran preacher. There's a guy there that's trying to wash the windshield for money. And, um, and the, the driver just looking straight ahead. Don't look at him. Don't look at him. Because if I look at him, then, then it's, he ultimately gave him some money, which was a cool thing. But that's the picture that's there. There's this guy who's lame who's been lame every day of his life, he gets laid at, at the beautiful gate, which is a prime location. Everybody's walking through this gate to get into the temple. It's prime real estate for a beggar. And he's asking everybody that comes, alms for the poor, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. Peter and John look at him, see him. They see his need and they say, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. The words in the Greek describe, they describe a healing that took place instantaneously where bones came together and muscles came together in a supernatural way. This guy who had been lame since the time that he was born, God jumped inside his body and and healed him. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Um, Did very many of you grow up in church, go through like children's church, that kind of thing? Does this sound familiar? Um, there was a song where I grew up that we sang that came right from the section, section of Scripture that went like this. Uh, Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He stuck out his palm and he asked for an alms, And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. First service, they clapped, all right? (laughs) And anybody recognize that song? Yeah, that great, great song, great song that actually tells the whole story that we just read. There's this guy who's a beggar. Sticks out his hand. He asks for cash. Peter and John say, we don't have silver gold. What we have, we'll give you. Rise up and walk. He did. God heals him. And he's walking and leaping and praising God. 
And everybody who's around doesn't know what to do with what's happened. Because here's this guy that they've seen every day. And he's healed. And he's walking. There's some, he's somebody that they know. Verse 11. While the, while the man who was lame, that's no longer lame, clung to Peter and John. Is that cool or what? All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico, in the porch called Solomon's. Um, go to that next slide, Eric. Um, this, is, this is a depiction of what the temple looked like. And I just want to show it so you have some context in your mind of what this looked like. They go through the gate and the temple's not far away. Those pillars that are ground level that go up are 27 feet tall when the temple was built. Okay? So it's, it's this huge area where lots and lots of people could come. The area over on the left-hand side is what they believe was Solomon's porch, Solomon's portico. So they come into the temple, and immediately they start to have this conversation there. Um, Peter saw it. He addresses the people and says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our own um, piety, our own holiness, we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. If you go back two weeks ago to the message on the day of Pentecost, I talked about about Peter's boldness that day. But if you look at that message from Acts chapter two, it's actually kind of a gentle message that turns the corner because he says, hey, you guys know the stories, you know, the prophets talked about a Messiah that would come. It's, it's, it's he leads them down this path. And ultimately, he says, Jesus was the Messiah and you killed him. It's direct, but there's there's a little bit of a gentleness that happens there. I think the boldness of Peter, based on what happened on the day of Pentecost, changes dramatically in terms of what happens in Acts chapter 3, because listen to to what he says. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, that you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And Pilate had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to to you. You killed the author of life that God raised from the dead. All of us saw this happen. We're witnesses of this. By his name, by the name of Jesus, by faith in his name, he's made this man strong that you see and know And the faith that's through Jesus has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Do you understand what Peter was doing? He was pointing the finger at everybody in the crowd and saying, you are the ones who did that. Pilate wanted to let him go and you made him not do it. You delivered him up. The author of life you killed. You did it. Bold message, right? Directive, confrontational. It's all there for them to do something. In verse 17, he says something amazing. He says, 
I, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. You didn't get it. You didn't understand. Your rulers didn't understand. And yet you're still guilty. Take just a second, because I think that there's a truth that applies to us very clearly today. Peter says to the Jews who were there, you guys acted in ignorance, but you did it. You were responsible for the death of Jesus. People who are ignorant of Jesus are still responsible and accountable for their actions. They are lost without Jesus, as we'll see in just a second. That's why it's so important for us as a church to support Tim and Courtney Chantier, to support the work in Ukraine, because there are people who don't know Jesus, who have never heard of him, who don't have any hope eternally, unless there's somebody sharing the scripture, sharing the story of Jesus with them. There are people in your life who are ignorant of Jesus. In the U.S., there are thousands Hundreds of thousands of people who grow up with everything accessible, but don't really have a clue about who Jesus is. And they will be held accountable in spite of their ignorance. Verse 19, Peter tells them what to do. Repent, therefore, and turn back so that your sins can be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who doesn't listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those who came after them also proclaim these days. You were the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Two things in that section I want to share. The first is this. Peter says, You killed the one that God sent to save you. What do you do? Repent so that your sins can be blotted out so that times of refreshing can come. What an incredible concept. When we repent, times of refreshing come. Sometimes we go through this process where we confess our sins, where we admit, you know what, God, I'm far from you. And nothing happens in us, right? Afterwards, we say, well, yeah, I did that, but I don't really feel any different. I would say the challenge for us is to make sure that we really repent, that our heart really changes. The language there says repent and turn again. And what that means is that that our heart moves us to action and we make a commitment to change direction and never to go back to the same path again. Do you get that? Repent so that your sins will be blotted out and so that times of refreshing will come. Have you ever seen somebody come to know Jesus and all of a sudden their physical appearance is like light years different. It's like they're 15 years younger because this burden, that the heaviness of sin and all the junk is just lifted off. I remember talking to a kid named Kerry when he was baptized. And he said, after he was baptized, I said, how do you feel? And he said, I feel clean. Is that, is that cool, Katie? That, 
Such, a, such an incredible thing. So that times of refreshing can come. Look at verse 26. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. If you've grown up in and around the church, if you've grown up in that culture, there's a real danger that we think in terms of I need a savior. I need someone to save me from my sin. I need someone to keep me from going to hell. And we see Jesus only as a tool to save us. What's Peter say right here? God sent Jesus to you to bless you by allowing you to turn away from your wickedness. Man, our lives are filled with such garbage. You know, so many things that separate us from God. Jesus come, didn't come just to save us, just to keep us from going to hell. He came to bless us. What an incredible thought about who God is. Chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees were a group of religious leaders that didn't believe in the resurrection. Their theology was such that they said, you know what, when we die, we just die. That's the end of our lives. We need to please God while we're here on earth. Um, God made us. But there's not really any resurrection, any kind of hope of eternity at all. That was the theological context for the Sadducees. And what's crazy is the Sadducees aren't upset with Peter and John for talking about Jesus. They're upset with Peter and John for attack, for giving an example that the resurrection's true. They, they were upset about their theology being called into question, not about anything that had to do with Jesus. That's such, that's such an interesting thing to me. Um, the, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Peter and John get thrown into jail. They're the first followers of Jesus that are thrown into jail. Jesus had been arrested, ultimately crucified. This is the first account that we have of anybody suffering as a result of their faith. They're thrown into jail, right? But as a result of what's going on, people come to know Jesus. The number of the church is about 5,000. We talked two weeks ago, day of Pentecost, 3,000 people respond, right? 3,000 people respond and are baptized. But many of them, many of them are people from other parts of the world that have probably dispersed at this point in time. So that 3,000 number has decreased a bunch, but the number of followers of Jesus reaches 5,000 men. Um, scholars think that it's probably the number of followers of Jesus at this point are probably somewhere between 8,000 and 12,000 because they didn't count women in there. Huge number of people. When I was thinking through this this week, I thought, you know, would I be willing to go to jail if it meant that people would come to know Jesus? Intellectually, that's an easy answer. Oh, sure, yeah. Until you get arrested and they start to take you to jail and you start to think about what jail meant in the first century. Wasn't a clean place. Wasn't a nice place. Wasn't three square meals a day. You know, all the human rights stuff. None of that at all. 
Are we willing to do whatever it takes for people to come to know Jesus? Peter and John were. They did. They were arrested, spent the night in jail because they healed a guy and told the story of Jesus. Verse 5. The next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Um, Pause just for a second again. Dr. Luke, the guy with all the details, mentions people by name, places by name. Annas had been the high priest, um, and the the guy before Pilate had basically taken him out of that role and replaced him with his son-in-law named Caiaphas. Annas was still really the guy that all of Jerusalem recognized as the Jewish leader, even though he didn't hold the position. Caiaphas held the position, but this was the source of religious power. For the Jewish nation. When they had set Peter and John in their midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? What kind of question is that? If you're on trial, it's just kind of this open ended question. Here's here's what I think happened. I think they asked this open ended question because they didn't know really what to ask. And they were hoping that Peter and John would just start talking and they could cross examine them and then catch them in their words. They were setting them up. With this very vague question, were they asking about Peter and John healing the layman? Were they asking about, about Peter and John um, attributing it to Jesus? Were they, were they challenging them about preaching in the temple? Their question's just vague. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the linchpin, the key of everything. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We live in a culture, in a, in a country, that has made tolerance the highest of virtues, right? It's the virtue above everything else. Our, if we live in, a, in this nation where everybody's allowed to believe whatever they want. And what Peter says at this point is completely counterculture to that. If, if there's a verse out of all of the uh, out of everything that we read today that I would say, you know what, go home and write this on a file card, put it up in your bathroom on the mirror, you know, put it on your table, do it as a reminder so that you can memorize this verse. It would be chapter four, verse twelve. Jesus is the only way that we can have a relationship with with God. Jesus said, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but by me." Um, For some of you who are here, I'm sure that's probably hard to hear. That's exclusive. That's narrow. That's some people would perceive that to be like um, really self-righteous, that you think that you've got it figured out. Understand that if God is the one who we want to have a relationship with, right? If we want to have a relationship with God eternally, God is the one who is the person who writes the terms for how we have that relationship with him. It's not us. 
We can't say, oh, I want to get to God this way. God is the one who establishes that. And Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Is that a great phrase or what? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. One of the commentators said that their silence had to be embarrassing. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather to listen to whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you have to judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Is that crazy? This guy that they had seen, that the people in Jerusalem had seen every day as they walked through the gate. The evidence of his healing was a reminder that the religious leaders couldn't do anything with. Peter and John said, it happened by the power of Jesus. We don't know what to do. Peter and John said, we're going to obey God rather than men. Let me, let me share four kind of takeaways from this section of scripture, okay? They're, um, they're not anything um, huge, but to me, they help, they help bring context to the story for my life. The first is this. Salvation is only found in Jesus. Just talk about that. That's so critical. Salvation is only found in Jesus. That's not something the world around us particularly wants to hear right now. Um, I don't know if you follow the news very much or not, but a week ago Thursday was the National Prayer Breakfast. And uh, that's been in the news a bunch because President Obama made some comments there. He was talking about what's going on in the Middle East and uh, with the Islamic State. And he drew some comparisons to the Islamic State, to the Crusades and stuff that was done in the name of Jesus. And there's been lots of brouhaha about that. Um, What... What you probably haven't heard much about was the keynote speaker of the National Prayer Breakfast. The keynote speaker for the National Prayer Breakfast was NASCAR driver Daryl Waltrip. Any NASCAR fans? Four of you. All right. So Waltrip's the keynote speaker. President Obama's there. The Dalai Lama's there. Um, 4,000 people are there, and, and Waltrip speaks. This is the, this is the news report um, of that day. 
um, from a very specific uh, news segment. NASCAR legend Daryl Waltrip held the honor of being keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast last week. Um, it's reported the three-time Sprint Cup Series champion spoke about his life and the salvation of Jesus. Waltrip said that early in his career, he was known as being brash, ruthless, pushy, cocky, conceited, aloof, boastful, arrogant, and annoying on and off the track. Waltrip said, those were the people that liked me. Uh, (laughs) Imagine what people that didn't like me had to say about me. After he was involved in a serious car accident at Daytona International Speedway, he turned his life around through Jesus Christ. Waltrip said, I realized that wreck knocked me conscious. It scared the hell out of me. I mean that literally. I realized, what if I had lost my life that day at Daytona? Would I have gone to heaven or would I have gone to hell? I thought I was a good guy, but folks, let me tell you something. Good guys go to hell. Waltrip continued, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you don't have a relationship with him, if he's not the master of your life, if you've never gotten on your knees and asked him to forgive you of your sins, or if you're just a pretty good guy or a pretty good gal, you're going to hell. Waltrip said that his life changed after he became a Christian. The former driver and, a, a driver and his wife prayed through miscarriages and had their first child in 1987. Obstacles in life remain, but his faith changed everything. Salvation can only come through Jesus. For some of us, those are hard words, but that's the truth of Scripture. That's the path that God laid out for us to have a relationship with him. We don't need to hedge on that. We don't need to apologize about it. That's truth. That's truth and hope for our world. And when we backpedal on that, we, we lead people the wrong direction. It's only through Jesus that, that, that there's salvation. The, the second thing out of this passage that I, that I think is just um, so important for us, the power of a changed life is indisputable. When Jesus comes in and changes everything, whether it's the healing of your feet and a lame man can walk or he changes your disposition, he changes your outlook, he forgives your sins and all of a sudden uh, your circumstances may not have changed, but the way that you deal with everything is absolutely different. People have to take notice. They notice when you would act a certain way before and you act a different way now. You don't have to have all the answers when your life changes. Peter and John said, we don't have silver and gold. For us, we may say, you know what, I don't have a, I don't have a seminary degree. I don't, I don't even know where all the books in the Bible are. There's so much I don't know, but here's what I can tell you. This is what God did in my life through Jesus. The, the third thing. that I I think is uh, significant for us, is the challenge to be bold. Peter and John's message is bold. Their action in terms of saying to this lame guy, rise up and walk, absolutely bold. Their their confrontation with the religious leaders 
is just as direct as it can be. I love the phrase, go big or go home. You know, it's a phrase I use when we play cards. You know, go big or go home. Be bold in terms of what God is doing in your life and telling a story. Boldness comes from being with Jesus. They recognize these are guys who had been with Jesus. Boldness comes by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. The, The last thing, the fourth thing is this. Expect opposition, but trust the Holy Spirit to deliver. Expect opposition, but trust the Holy Spirit to deliver. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you, will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus promised his followers that he would provide the words for us. So much time we freak out because we say, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't don't have the right words. I don't know what to say to this person that I love. And we're getting into this conversation about spiritual things. Pray because Jesus said the Holy Spirit will give you the words. I can tell you... I can't tell you how many times I would say in my life that that's been true. I've gotten into a conversation. All of a sudden I start talking and like I want to take notes of myself <laughs> because it's not stuff that I've thought about before. It's not stuff that I have prepared. It is the Holy Spirit stepping inside and speaking truth that needs to be said at that point in time. Jesus promised that would happen. We don't need to worry and be afraid. I don't know what I'm going to say. The Holy Spirit's going to come in and and do that work. I don't have silver or gold, but here's what I do have. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. The challenge for us today from this passage is to recognize salvation only comes in Jesus. To live boldly as a result of that. To recognize that there's going to be opposition. It's not all going to be a bed of roses, but God has a plan for us. He's He's given us the power. It gives us an opportunity to be witnesses of what Jesus is doing in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, I I thank you just for the chance to look at your word and let it um, permeate our heads and our hearts this morning. Lord, there's so much there. Your your spirit's working in us. God convicting us, challenging us. Lord, I I just ask that you would do your work in us, that we would be your people in your church, that we would live boldly because of what Jesus has done in our lives. God, for all of us, that looks different. It doesn't necessarily mean that we do the Peter and John thing in the temple courts, but man, it does mean that we're bold in our relationships with people that we know not um, hesitating to talk about what you're doing in us. Help us, God. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your power. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together. Allow God to